Chapter Four of Janet's Repentance from Scenes of Clerical Life by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bruce Peary. Chapter Four. Mr. Tryan was right in saying that the row in Milby had been preconcerted by Dempster. The placards and the caricature were prepared before the departure of the delegates, and it had been settled that Matt Payne, Dempster's clerk, should ride out on Thursday morning to meet them at Whitlow, the last place where they would change horses, that he might gallop back and prepare an ovation for the triumvirate in case of their success. Dempster had determined to dine at Whitlow, so that Matt Payne was in Milby again two hours before the entrance of the delegates, and had time to send a whisper up the back streets that there was a promise of a spree in the bridgeway, as well as to assemble two knots of picked men, one to feed the flame of orthodox zeal with gin and water at the Green Man near High Street, the other to solidify their church principles with heady beer at the bare and ragged staff in the bridgeway. The bridgeway was an irregular straggling street, where the town fringed off raggedly into the Whitlow Road. Rows of new red-brick houses, in which ribbon looms were rattling behind long lines of window, alternating with old, half-thatched, half-tiled cottages. One of those dismal, wide streets where dirt and misery have no long shadows thrown on them to soften their ugliness. Here, about half-past five o'clock, Silly Caleb, an idiot well-known in Dog Lane, but more of a stranger in the bridgeway, was seen slouching along with a string of boys hooting at his heels. Presently another group, for the most part out at elbows, came briskly in the same direction, looking round them with an air of expectation. And at no long interval Deb Tronter, in a pink flounced gown and floating ribbons, was observed talking with great affability to two men in sealskin caps and fustian who formed her cortege. The bridgeway began to have a presentiment of something in the wind. Fib Cook left her evening wash-tub and appeared at her door in soap-suds, a bonnet-poke, and general dampness. Three narrow-chested ribbon-weavers in rusty black, streaked with shreds of many-coloured silk, sauntered out with their hands in their pockets, and Molly Beale, a brawny old virago, descrying wiry Dame Ricketts peeping out from her entry, seized the opportunity of renewing the morning's skirmish. In short, the bridgeway was in that state of excitement which is understood to announce a demonstration on the part of the British public, and the afflux of remote townsmen increasing there was soon so large a crowd that it was time for Bill Powers, a plethoric Goliath, who presided over the knot of beer-drinkers at the bare and ragged staff, to issue forth with his companions and, like the enunciator of the ancient myth, make the assemblage distinctly conscious of the common sentiment that had drawn them together. The expectation of the delegate's chaise, added to the fight between Molly Beale and Dame Ricketts, and the ill-advised appearance of a lean bull-terrier were a sufficient safety-valve to the popular excitement during the remaining quarter of an hour, at the end of which the chaise was seen approaching along the Whitlow Road, with oak boughs ornamenting the horses' heads, and, to quote the account of this interesting scene which was sent to the Rotherby Guardian, 
loud cheers immediately testified to the sympathy of the honest fellows collected there with the public-spirited exertions of their fellow-townsmen bill powers whose bloodshot eyes bent hat and protuberant attitude marked him out as a natural leader of the assemblage undertook to interpret the common sentiment by stopping the chaise advancing to the door with raised hat and begging to know of mr dempster whether the rector had forbidden the canting lecture yes yes said mr dempster keep up a jolly good hooray no public duty could have been more easy and agreeable to mr powers and his associates and the chorus swelled all the way to the high street where by a mysterious coincidence often observable in these spontaneous demonstrations large placards on long poles were observed to shoot upwards from among the crowd principally in the direction of tucker's lane where the green man was situated one bore down with the tryanites another no cant another long live our venerable curate and one in still larger letters sound church principles and no hypocrisy but a still more remarkable impromptu was a huge caricature of mr tryan in gown and band with an enormous aureole of yellow hair and upturned eyes standing on the pulpit stairs and trying to pull down old mr crewe groans yells and hisses hisses yells and groans only stemmed by the appearance of another caricature representing mr tryan being pitched head foremost from the pulpit stairs by a hand which the artist either from subtlety of intention or want of space had left unindicated in the midst of the tremendous cheering that saluted this piece of symbolical art the chaise had reached the door of the red lion and loud cries of dempster forever with a feebler cheer now and then for tomlinson and bud were presently responded to by the appearance of the public-spirited attorney at the large upper window where also were visible a little in the background the small sleek head of mr bud and the blinking countenance of mr tomlinson mr dempster held his hat in his hand and poked his head forward with a butting motion by way of bow a storm of cheers subsided at last into dropping sounds of silence hear him go it dempster and the lawyer's rasping voice became distinctly audible fellow-townsmen it gives us the sincerest pleasure i speak for my respected colleagues as well as myself to witness these strong proofs of your attachment to the principles of our excellent church and your zeal for the honour of our venerable pastor but it is no more than i expected of you i know you well i have known you for the last twenty years to be as honest and respectable a set of ratepayers as any in this county your hearts are sound to the core no man had better try to thrust his cant and hypocrisy down your throats you are used to wash them with liquor of a better flavour this is the proudest moment in my own life and i think i may say in that of my colleagues in which i have to tell you that our exertions in the cause of sound religion and manly morality have been crowned with success yes my fellow-townsmen i have the gratification of announcing to you thus formally what you have already learned indirectly the pulpit from which our venerable pastor has fed us with sound doctrine for half a century 
is not to be invaded by a fanatical sectarian double-faced jesuitical interloper we are not to have our young people demoralized and corrupted by the temptations to vice notoriously connected with sunday evening lectures we are not to have a preacher obtruding himself upon us who decries good works and sneaks into our homes perverting the faith of our wives and daughters we are not to be poisoned with doctrines which damp every innocent enjoyment and pick a poor man's pocket of the sixpence with which he might buy himself a cheerful glass after a hard day's work under pretense of paying for bibles to send to the chicktaws but i'm not going to waste your valuable time with unnecessary words i am a man of deeds ay damn you that you are and you charge well for em too said a voice from the crowd probably that of a gentleman who was immediately afterwards observed with his hat crushed over his head i shall always be at the service of my fellow-townsmen and whoever dares to hector over you or interfere with your innocent pleasures shall have an account to settle with robert dempster now my boys you can't do better than disperse and carry the good news to all your fellow-townsmen whose hearts are as sound as your own let some of you go one way and some another that every man woman and child in milby may know what you know yourselves but before we part let us have three cheers for true religion and down with cant when the last cheer was dying mr dempster closed the window and the judiciously instructed placards and caricatures moved off in diverse directions followed by larger or smaller divisions of the crowd the greatest attraction apparently lay in the direction of dog lane the outlet towards paddiford common whither the caricatures were moving and you foresee of course that those works of symbolical art were consumed with a liberal expenditure of dry gorse-bushes and vague shouting after these great public exertions it was natural that mr dempster and his colleagues should feel more in need than usual of a little social relaxation and a party of their friends was already beginning to assemble in the large parlour of the red lion convened partly by their own curiosity and partly by the invaluable matt Payne. the most capacious punch-bowl was put in requisition and that born gentleman mr loam seated opposite mr dempster as vice undertook to brew the punch defying the criticisms of the envious men out of office who with the readiness of irresponsibility ignorantly suggested more lemons the social festivities were continued till long past midnight when several friends of sound religion were conveyed home with some difficulty one of them showing a dogged determination to seat himself in the gutter mr dempster had done as much justice to the punch as any of the party and his friend boots though aware that the lawyer could carry his liquor like old nick with whose social demeanour boots seemed to be particularly well acquainted nevertheless thought it might be as well to see so good a customer in safety to his own door and walked quietly behind his elbow out of the inn-yard dempster however soon became aware of him stopped short and turning slowly round upon him recognized the well-known drab waistcoat sleeves conspicuous enough in the starlight you tuppenny scoundrel what do you mean by dogging a professional man's footsteps in this way 
I'll break every bone in your skin if you attempt to track me, like a beastly cur sniffing at one's pocket. Do you think a gentleman will make his way home any the better for having the scent of your blacking bottle thrust up his nostrils? Boots slunk back in more amusement than ill-humour, thinking the lawyer's rum-talk was doubtless part and parcel of his professional ability, and Mr. Dempster pursued his slow way alone. His house lay in Orchard Street, which opened on the prettiest outskirt of the town. The church, the parsonage, and a long stretch of green fields. It was an old-fashioned house with an overhanging upper story. Outside it had a face of rough stucco, and casement windows with green frames and shutters. Inside it was full of long passages and rooms with low ceilings. There was a large heavy knocker on the green door, and though Mr. Dempster carried a latch-key, he sometimes chose to use the knocker. He chose to do so now. The thunder resounded through Orchard Street, and after a single minute there was a second clap louder than the first. Another minute, and still the door was not opened, whereupon Mr. Dempster, muttering, took out his latch-key, and with less difficulty than might have been expected, thrust it into the door. When he opened the door, the passage was dark. Janet, in the loudest rasping tone, was the next sound that rang through the house. Janet, again, before a slow step was heard on the stairs, and a distant light began to flicker on the wall of the passage. Curse you, you creeping idiot! Come faster, can't you? Yet a few seconds, and the figure of a tall woman, holding aslant a heavy-plated drawing-room candlestick, appeared at the turning of the passage that led to the broader entrance. She had on a light dress which sat loosely about her figure, but did not disguise its liberal, graceful outline. A heavy mass of straight jet-black hair had escaped from its fastening, and hung over her shoulders. Her grandly cut features, pale with the natural paleness of a brunette, had premature lines about them, telling that the years had been lengthened by sorrow, and the delicately curved nostril, which seemed made to quiver with the proud consciousness of power and beauty, must have quivered to the heart-piercing griefs which had given that worn look to the corners of the mouth. Her wide-open black eyes had a strangely fixed, sightless gaze as she paused at the turning and stood silent before her husband. "'I'll teach you to keep me waiting in the dark, you pale, staring fool,' he said, advancing with his slow, drunken step. "'What, you've been drinking again, have you? I'll beat you into your senses.' He laid his hand with a firm grip on her shoulder, turned her round, and pushed her slowly before him along the passage and through the dining-room door, which stood open on their left hand. There was a portrait of Janet's mother, a grey-haired, dark-eyed old woman in a neatly fluted cap hanging over the mantelpiece. Surely the aged eyes take on a look of anguish as they see Janet, not trembling, no, it would be better if she trembled, standing, stupidly unmoved in her great beauty while the heavy arm is lifted to strike her. The blow falls, another and another. Surely the mother hears that cry, Oh, Robert, pity, pity! Poor grey-haired woman, 
was it for this you suffered a mother's pangs in your lone widowhood five and thirty years ago was it for this you kept the little worn morocco shoes janet had first run in and kissed them day by day when she was away from you a tall girl at school was it for this you looked proudly at her when she came back to you in her rich pale beauty like a tall white arum that has just unfolded its grand pure curves to the sun the mother lies sleepless and praying in her lonely house weeping the difficult tears of age because she dreads this may be a cruel night for her child she too has a picture over her mantelpiece drawn in chalk by janet long years ago she looked at it before she went to bed it is a head bowed beneath a cross and wearing a crown of thorns end of chapter four of janet's repentance